0: Um, We're going to read Ecclesiastes 3, um, 16 through 4, uh, verse 3. Take it away whenever you're ready.
1: Okay. I also noticed that under the sun there is evil in the courtroom. Yes, even the courts of law are corrupt. I said to myself, in due season God will judge everyone, both good and bad, for all their deeds. I also thought about the human condition, how God proves to people that they are like animals. For people and animals share the same fate. Both breathe and both must die. So people have no real advantage over the animals. How meaningless. Both go to the same place. They came from dust and they return to dust. For who can prove that the human spirit goes up and the spirit of animals goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better for people than to be happy in their work. That is our lot in life. And no one can bring us back to see what happens after we die. Again, I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them, and the oppressors have great power, and their victims are helpless. So I concluded that the dead are better off than the living, but most fortunate of all are those who are not yet born, for they have not seen all the evil that is done under the sun.
0: Amen. Chipper passage for us today. Um, Yeah, we can thank Amy. Amy. And uh, let's pray before you have a seat. Father, um, God, we're grateful for your word. And uh, God, as gloomy as a passage like this is, um, and as true as it is, um, God, we're grateful that we do have hope, um, that we have hope in a ruler, in a king um, who is just and who is righteous. And uh, God, not a single moment of injustice will ever go unpunished under your watch. Um, God, it may seem like evil rules the day today, and it is getting away with it, Um, but God, we're grateful um, for the promises in your word, um, that even the thoughts of men's hearts would be revealed, and they would be judged for them. God, we're grateful um, that in the midst of a divine, fierce judgment, um, you've also provided a refuge. Um, So God, help us um, to look honestly at your justice and your judgment. Um, But God, to look um, hopefully and look desperately, um, God, to the refuge that you provide. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Pop quiz for you as we start this morning. Um, I had a couple call me, and uh, this isn't Mac or Liz or Zeke and Katie and a couple that left recently. This was a couple that moved away a couple years ago. And... uh, she called, and then she sent an email and just said, hey, I want you to look at this, uh, these doctrinal statements of this church that we've um, been checking out uh, where we now live. I was like, great, we'd be happy to, we'd love to. And uh, she sent me these statements, and she said, I just feel like this, this conviction inside my spirit um, that there's some adding to the gospel here. And it was very subtle in the doctrinal statements, and uh, she sent them over to me, and I kindly responded and said, hey, I would listen to that. Um, because it's pretty clear from these doctrinal statements um, that this church um, has added some works to the gospel. Now, my question for you on your quiz is, what book do you think I quoted? And it's not Ecclesiastes. What book do you think I quoted when I told her the warning about adding to the gospel, that when you add to the gospel, you don't have any gospel anymore? Which one was it? Galatians, right? There it is, Liam. We, We just covered this book, and this is, I wanted to share that with you as an encouragement, not to be self-righteous or like I'm the judge of churches or anything like that, um, but this is where theology meets real life. Um, This is where it happens, because there's some sharp warnings in Galatians 1 about that those who preach a gospel, other than the the gospel of the finished work of Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, um, there's some intense cursing for those that fall into that doctrine, but also for those that hear it and believe it. And um, just like in Galatians, we saw just theology, you know, where the rubber meets the road in our real lives. Um, it's been so encouraging as we walk through Ecclesiastes. Um, I have, I've had many of you say, hey, I'm getting it. Like, I'm, I'm seeing and I'm evaluating my world as I'm conducting business, as I'm, you know, talking to my employer, as I'm just parenting my children. I'm evaluating my world through the lens of Scripture. Um, so much of what I care about is essentially Meaningless. And what matters is my relationship with the Lord, my kids' relationship with the Lord, how I point them to the Lord, all of those kind of things. And if you've noticed, I want you to see, as we've been walking through, it's a good time to just kind of stop and review the last couple weeks, and I don't mean like a long review, but have you noticed the pattern that Solomon has been giving us in Ecclesiastes? Um, There is a distinct pattern in this book. And I want to kind of point it out to you just so you can see it for yourself. But if you remember in chapter one, he essentially says that we're on this hamster wheel of humanity, right? That the the winds are blowing, the sun's going, you know, around the world, that that the, the rains are falling and just generations are coming through this human machine and no one is remembered. And what's his conclusion? He says that if you're living for being remembered, if you're living to make a name for yourself, he says all of that is vanity. So here's what I want you to do. Fear the Lord but then enjoy this vapor of a life that he's given you. Do you see that? Fear the Lord. Don't put your hope in being remembered. Don't put your hope in making a name for yourself. Love the Lord and enjoy the life that he's given you. And then I would conclude and pass on what matters most, whether your family remembers your name or not. Share the fear of the Lord with your children. And generations after you, they might not even know your name. But they will inherit and and receive the benefits of you investing the gospel and your faith into your children and your children's children and on and on they go. They may not forget or they may not ever know your name, but they may not even begin to fathom the benefits of having a great, great, great grandfather or grandmother who loved the Lord and taught their children what it means to fear the Lord. But he says, Don't put your hope in it, but enjoy it. And then he keeps on going. And he says, I tried pleasure. I tried to find lasting meaning and worth and significance in pleasure. And he says, You can't find it. He says, I tried everything. So what's his conclusion? Don't put your hope, don't root your identity in the pleasures of this life. Put your hope in Christ, but then enjoy the pleasures of this life. Eat Rocky Road, go to the beach. Order a medium rare steak, go to the concerts, but don't put your hope in human pleasure. Put your hope in the ultimate pleasure, beyond the sun, which is Christ. In his presence there is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Don't put your hope in the human pleasures, put your hope in Christ, but then go and enjoy the the gifts of God in human pleasure. Go on vacation, go watch a sunset, Go on a walk in the evening now that the weather's starting to to feel nice. Enjoy all of the pleasures of life. Get a double scoop. Do it, right? Enjoy it. And then he goes on and he says, I tried human wisdom. And you're starting to see the pattern, right? Don't put your hope in how wise you conduct your business or how wise you plan for the future or how wise you live. Don't put your hope in that. Who do you put your hope in? The Lord. The Lord. Fear the Lord, but then live wisely because it's better than being foolish. Do you see what he's been doing? Do not root your identity, your worth, your significance in anything under the sun. Don't put your hope in how wise you are and that you've got all of your, your assets and your, your life planned out for the generations after you. You don't know what they'll do with it. They might squander it in two years. And that's what the, all of the statistics say, the trends are. The average inheritance, gone in two years. Don't put your hope in what you provide. Don't put your hope in human wisdom. Fear the Lord, but then live wisely because God's given you wisdom and he's the author of all wisdom. And life is better when we live according to his wisdom in the word. Do you see what he's doing here? And then he talked about work. Do not put your hope in your job. It's vanity. Someone 20 years from now is going to have the job that you have. So many of us trade our lives here on earth for a job that somebody else is gonna work in 30 years. We trade our time with our wives, and our children, and our families to try to feel something from a job that somebody else is gonna have. So many of us trade the role that's unique to us. There is only one person on the planet that God has made and given the gift of being Parks' dad, and that's me. And so many times I trade that role that's unique to me for a job that somebody else is gonna work in 30 years. Don't put your hope in your work. What do I put my hope in? Not even being a parent. Put your hope in Christ. But then what does he say? Enjoy your work. As Christians, the standard for us at work is actually higher than the world. Paul tells us in Colossians that we should work heartily at everything we do as if we're working for the Lord and not for men. So we don't put our hope in our job. We don't find our security in our job. We put all of that in the Lord, but then we work hard at our jobs as representatives of the Lord. And if we don't like our jobs, prayerfully by God's grace, we find another job that we can enjoy because our job doesn't define who we are. It only describes what we do for our time here on this earth. It doesn't give us any worth, any significance. And if you're looking for that, you're never gonna find it. It's never gonna give you what you're looking for do you see the pattern? Here's another thing that I tried to satisfy my deepest longings. It did not work. So I put my hope in the Lord, and now I'm going to enjoy that thing for what it is, knowing that it can't satisfy me, it can't complete me, but it is a good gift from the Lord. And last week, Solomon essentially said that God is appointed every season, and he calls them all beautiful. The living, the dying, the mourning, the loss, the weeping, the rejoicing, the dancing, every single one of it is beautiful. And we landed on this conclusion, how can I ever look back at the loss of a family member or the loss of a job and call that season beautiful? I will only do that if I'm not looking for that thing or that season to satisfy me. If I know my hope is in the Lord, my identity is in the Lord, my joy is in the Lord, then I can look back at that season and say, yeah, it stunk that it's gone. Yeah, it was so hard to let go of. But since it doesn't define me or completely, or complete me or fulfill me, I can look back and say, man, the Lord, that was a gift from him. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be his name. He gave me a great gift in that season. And yeah, it was hard to let it go. But What a gift. And I'm able to let go of those things without kicking and screaming and without the Lord prying my knuckles open because why? My hope's not in that thing or that season. My hope is in the Lord. This is why I was totally content with my grandfather dying. Why? The outside world would look at that and go, man, he suffered for seven or eight years. How cruel of the Lord to do that. And I responded with no, how beautiful because my grandfather didn't know the Lord. And God used those seven or eight years of suffering to to fix his gaze on the next world, above the sun. And I don't know if my grandfather would have been saved had God not put him through that season where he could no longer trust in his own health, in his own wealth, in his own stuff, in his own plan for his funeral. He couldn't trust in any of those things. He had to throw his hands up and find hope beyond the sun. And so Solomon says, hey, the Lord's appointed every season, and now we can look at it and call it beautiful. So don't put your hope in the seasons and the circumstances of this life. What does he say? Put your hope in the Lord, and then enjoy the circumstances and seasons that God's given you. Enjoy them for the beauty that they are. They are all gifts from the Lord. Do you see the pattern here? Now, what's going to happen is Solomon just said that every single season is ordained and planned by God. What God has done will endure forever. You can't alter it. You can't change it. The Psalms say the Lord's in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And then it's almost as if, I mean, Solomon's doing this in his own mind, but it's as if, you know, people around him or just his own mind is going, wait, wait, wait. you just said God appointed everything. And then he says, but I saw this. And then I saw this. If you look at uh, chapter four, verse one, he says, again, I saw this. Chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw this. Chapter 4, verse 7. Again, I saw this. And he starts to point out these things that don't necessarily make sense if God is sovereign and plans all things. And he's like, Well, what's going on here? And what's going on here? And today he points out that there is great injustice on the earth. And he says this if you look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So Solomon, keep in mind the context, is the king of Israel. And he's looking out over Israel and he's going, there's wickedness everywhere. Even in the places where there's supposed to be justice, in the courts, there's wickedness. And in the places where there's supposed to be righteousness, there's wickedness. The people that are supposed to be innocent are being declared guilty, and the people that are supposed to be guilty are being declared innocent, and those people are taking bribes, and those people are corrupt, and take it by faith. Imagine a world like that, right? Imagine a world where there's injustice in the land, and those that are supposed to be protecting and guiding and feeding and making decisions on behalf of constituents are serving themselves and taking bribes and... Trading stocks and all of those kind of things, right? Imagine a world where that's happening. He says there is injustice in the land. And what does he have to say about it? Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And here's a great principle that we see Solomon apply right in this moment. As he looks out at the injustice in the world, what does he put his hope in? Hey, that there's a day coming where there's a judgment coming, there is justice coming. The book of Amos says that justice is gonna roll like the rivers. That there is a day coming where God will be the judge of the living and the dead where every single evil deed will be made known. The righteous and the wicked are gonna stand before the Lord. Every knee's gonna bow and there's gonna be justice. Instead of putting his hope And instead of fixating on the lack of justice here on this earth, he says, but there's a day coming. I don't put my hope in this world. I put my hope in the next one. And if you read through the scriptures, it's very clear that God is going to judge the living and the dead, that every single person, you and I, your children, my children, are all going to stand before their maker one day and give an account for their lives, Here's a couple of scriptures. Hebrews 9, verse 27. And just as it it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Acts 17, verse 31, beautiful verse. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Hey, that you're dying doesn't allow you to escape this judgment. That the Savior rose, and everyone's gonna rise, and everyone's gonna stand before this man whom God has appointed, the judge of the living and the judge of the dead. Romans 2 16, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Psalm 37, turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, the Lord loves justice, he will not forsake his saints. They are persevered forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. And then later in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And we should do the same thing as we see injustice. Remembering that that there is a future judgment coming, so many of us—and I'm getting into the application—but as we believe the gospel and receive the gospel, there's always some application for us. So many of us want to jump into, you know, Batman and just I'm vengeance, right? I'm just going to go after and do something to the people that are, especially when we're on the other end of injustice. Hey, that was wrong. What they did to me was not right. It was not, you know, upright. It was deceitful. It was not fair. And Solomon and and. Paul quotes in Romans, he says that the Lord says, vengeance is mine, that, hey, there's a day coming where that's going to be made known, and I'm going to deal with it. There's a day coming, there's a future day, but so many of us look around and go, whoa, 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 why are they getting away with that? Why is God allowing for that to happen? Why is God allowing for this distreatment in my own family happen? Why does it seem like they're getting away? Why does it seem like the people that are supposed to be making decisions for us seem to be benefiting, while we end up paying for more, you know, higher prices for more stuff. Why does it seem like this is happening? It seems like they're getting away. And Solomon says, hey, there's a future day coming where every single injustice will be made known. Take your gaze and your hope off of this thing getting fixed. Now, he's not going to say we just be passive and let things happen. But he says, don't put your hope in earthly justice, Put your hope on a future day when our king returns and he's going to come and judge the living and the dead. And what's so fascinating about this is Solomon is the king of Israel. Like he has a hand in what happens in Israel as far as justice is concerned. The people in the courts, the judges, the officials, they work for him. They answer to him. And he's looking around and look at what he says in verse 18. He says this, I find this so fascinating. He says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that, themse- that they themselves are but beasts. Solomon looks around at Israel and he says, they're a bunch of animals. Just look at how the people act. Look at how, the, how wicked and how corrupt the human will is. Look at how quickly we fall into greed. Look at how quickly we fall into to self-preservation and to, to, to um, just treating and gaining and, and rewarding ourselves when we get the opportunity at the expense of someone else. Look at the poor. Look at the oppressed. Look at those who are homeless. Look at those who are hungry. He says, we're like animals out here. Can't take care of one another. Can't look after one another. Can't do what's just. He says, it is like the animal kingdom here in Israel. Survival of The fittest the stronger are surviving and the weaker are struggling. And I love how he uses this likening, this this illustration of animals. If you think about it, animals have no sense of justice. Animals have no sense of morality. The only reason that you and I have a sense of justice and morality is because the image of God has been stamped on us, that our Creator, who defines what is good and what is right and what is wrong and what is evil and what is true and what is not true has stamped his image on us so that we can look around and, and animals don't have any capacity to worship, any capacity to do what's just. They're just instinctual, right? They just do what comes, what, what God has instinctually created them to do. And the stronger animals eat the weaker animals and the medium-sized animal eat the small and just the, the circle of, right? You, you know what's going on here. It's just over and over again. And Solomon's looking out over his kingdom and going, man, there's some wrong, evil, wicked stuff going on here because man left to our own devices, let's be honest with ourselves for a second, is not any better than the animal kingdom. Man's will unrestrained, man's will without any laws or any morality is hardly any different, isn't it? It's actually a really good comparison, and what's so fascinating is when you look at the the, um, the secular world. What's so ironic is the secular world that, that believes that we came from nothing. In fact, that they believe we evolved from animals. That they cry out for justice, and it's like that doesn't make any sense. You don't think that there's a God or there's a creator who who defines morality and says what's good and what's right, but you think we came from animals, we came from nothing, we're going to nothing, yet you want justice? On what morals and what basis do you cry out for justice if we came from nothing and we're going to nothing? But even the secular atheistic world is crying out for justice. Why? Because whether they believe God or not, what has he stamped on them? his image. And they can't reconcile it with their own beliefs, with their own worldview. But even the worldview that can't make sense of it is saying, hey, that's just wrong. I have no basis for what's good and evil because I don't believe there's a God, but I can just know it when I see it. Why? Because whether they recognize it or not, the image of God is stamped on every single human being. And Solomon's looking out and going, man, It's like we're animals out here. No sense of morality, no sense of righteousness, no sense of justice. And here's the point, that man apart from God is not just unrighteous, but Solomon has said, we are beastly. We are like the animals. That there are very few things that are worth fearing more than a man's will unrestrained. Men have done terrible, evil, wicked things without a will that's restrained by the morals of God. Name the the event, and you know it's true. There has been some intense evil done in this world because man's will has been unrestrained. Unrestrained. And here's what's so fascinating about this, and here's what's so crazy about this. This is Solomon, the king of Israel, appointed by God. And here's what's even more fascinating, is Israel's law in that day was literally the Bible. It's the Old Testament law. Literally, they had the most perfect law that has ever existed. Psalms 19, verse seven says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now, any human traditions that they added beyond that are not perfect, but literally the law of the land was the Bible, and Solomon looks out over his kingdom and goes, wow, it's like they're animals. And here's what's so fascinating about that, and here's what we need to know, that the problem wasn't the law. The problem wasn't the law. Now, all of our human laws and even our American constitution is not perfect and inerrant and inspired by God. The only law that has ever been perfect is God's law that he gave to his people as he ruled them. But the problem isn't the law. The problem wasn't the law. The problem wasn't, and here's what we're so tempted to believe, that the problem is just out there. If they would just start doing something different, if they would just boot their leader and get somebody else, if they would just institute this legislation, if we could just get a new person in office, we are so tempted to think that if we just fixed a couple things out there that we would suddenly have peace and justice. Now, let's be honest, changes do help, but that's never gonna fix the problem because the ultimate problem, Solomon is saying, is not out there. It's not a law problem. The ultimate problem is in here. It's a heart problem. That Israel had the perfect law. James calls it the perfect law that gives freedom. And what does Solomon open up chapter four with? There's oppression everywhere. The problem is not the law. The problem is us. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. Noah Mountain, here's the point. There is no amount of human laws, there's no amount of law in general that can ever restrain the human heart. Even the Old Testament law, as perfect as it was, could not fix, by adherence to the law, could not fix what's broken in here. The law and the laws of our day today might restrain our hands for a minute, They might stop us from doing certain things. They might stop you from stealing or from, you know, murdering or from you name it. They might stop you from speeding. Some of us. (laughs) Maybe. They might stop you. They might restrain your hand, but they can never fix your heart. That we have a greater problem than a hand problem. That we have a problem deep within us and it's because of the fall. There's no amount of human law that's ever gonna fix what's broken inside of me. And Solomon's looking out and going, man, there is so much injustice. And then he says this in verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. He says, as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust and to dust all return. And Solomon's essentially saying that as a human in this unjust world, what benefit do you have over even the animals? If we're all just gonna function like animals. We're all born and we all go back to the dust here under the sun. Remember, he's talking about life down here, not the eternal state, not the next life. He's just talking about the human existence. He says if you think about it, we don't have much advantage other than some animals fear us. But then there's animals that we fear. And he said, we we really don't have much advantage if you're just evaluating life down here. What happens to them is going to happen to us. We have the same breath and we all go back to dust. And then he says this in verse 21. I want to address it because it's a little bit controversial. He says, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes into the earth. Now he's using hyperbole here. This whole paragraph is just really strong language to talk about just the gravity of how bad things have gotten here on the earth. And some theologians, which aren't many and I don't agree with, are saying, I wonder if Solomon actually didn't think that there's an afterlife. Um, I don't think he's asking that question. But I think we can see some truth in this statement. That, hey, to, to some extent, we don't know who's going upward and who's not. We don't know who's righteous in heart and who's not. We don't know, just all we can evaluate is the hands and the actions of men. To some extent, we don't know the heart. I don't know your heart. I don't know if you genuinely love the Lord and have trusted in him and his righteousness or not. But he says, to some extent, we just don't know. And then he says this, verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And here's his conclusion. Injustice running rampant, oppression all over the place, He says this, it's nothing better than to rejoice in what the Lord has given you in his lot. Who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Hey, and I I wanna be clear, he's not saying be a doormat. He's not saying just be subject to the oppression. He's not saying any of that. But he is saying if your hope, and this is a hard truth for us, if your hope is in the next human leader, if your hope is in the next human system, if your hope is in just the next piece of legislation, he says it's not going to work. It's not going to fix what's wrong. It's not going to fix what's broken. That as long as our systems are ruled by humans with broken hearts, creating broken systems, you're never going to find the peace and the joy that you're looking for. You're just not going to find it. He is concluding that you won't Find it. So he says, receive the lot that the Lord has given you and live within it and enjoy it as a gift from Him. Use that season that He's put you in to depend on Him more, to worship Him more, to walk with Him more, but don't put your hope in earthly systems or earthly seasons. And I know it's easy to say that right now, but what happens when the next election comes around? Then we all get tempted. And I get it. Change is good. Policies do differ in their effectiveness. And Solomon's going to conclude, and if we filter this passage through the rest of the New Testament, we are commanded as believers to get involved and to do what's just and to fight for the oppressed and to fight fight against the injustices. But he says, don't ever put your hope in the human system. Work for it. Fight for it. But don't find your identity in it. Don't root your joy in it. Rejoice in what the Lord has given you and leverage that season to know him more and to depend on him more. And then he says this in uh, chapter four. He says, again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. You see how honest he's getting? I can't help but, but share what I think about when I read this verse. Um, you know, in the world of injustice, there's so much that we could name. But I think one of the greatest injustices of our modern day is abortion. And to hear Solomon say the tears of the oppressed cry out and no one is there to comfort them. And the the wrong application of this passage is just to say, well, this is our lot, right? Let's do nothing. No, what would Solomon say? Don't put your hope in things changing. Don't find your worth in things changing. Don't find your security in things changing. Put your hope in the Lord. Fix your eyes on a day where every single one of those wrongs are gonna be made right, where every single one of those souls are gonna be with us in glory, and work, fight, get involved. Get involved. Help mothers who are pregnant. And and I want to be clear, as I say those things, if you've had an abortion, there is no sin that could ever separate you from the love of Christ if your um, faith and your trust in your worth is in Christ. That you can't outsend the cross of Christ. Find refuge in the Lord. But Solomon says, put your hope on a greater day. Receive your lot. Rejoice in it, work in it. The rest of the New Testament says, get involved in it. Pray for our leaders, advocate for things to change, fight for those who are poor and broken and oppressed and needy. Get involved, but don't put your hope in the human system. And he says this, and I thought, and here's the the weight of this, and I just want you to see. Remember, he's the king of Israel, looking out at his nation who's governed by the Bible. And he says, and I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. And remember, he's talking about the oppressed here. And he says, the oppression was so bad that those who died in the midst of their oppression are honestly better off than those who are living through Now, remember, he's, he's using a lot of strong language here. But I want you to see just how evil things have gotten, just how bad things have gotten. And the perfect situation, which should show us and and guard us against this temptation. If we just get the perfect leader with the perfect rules and the perfect laws, then we'll be great. Solomon had all of those things. Now he wasn't perfect, but he had the law of God and he was chosen by God and he feared the Lord and he walked with the Lord. And he says it's better for those who have died than those who are living through this. And then he says this in verse three. He says, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Not only is it better for those who have died in this, it's better for those who haven't even existed. Like he is using insanely strong language to talk about the evil that is running rampant on the earth. And so many of us, were so tempted in our our glorified memory to say, man, if we could just go back to this season, right, if we could just go back to that season, that's when things were going well name a season. There is none. There's not a single season that we could ever want to go back to and say, man, this was the culmination of the human experience here on earth. There's not one. Doesn't matter what decade you pick. Does not matter. Biblically, theologically, the only season we could ever want to go back to is the Garden of Eden. And the cherubim cherubim right outside of the garden with their flaming swords are making sure that we don't ever get back there because the Lord's put them there. But theologically, that's the only season. There is something corrupt and something evil and something wrong about every season that's ever existed since Genesis chapter three. There's not a season that we want to look back to. And Solomon's saying, you don't look back. What you look to is you look forward because there's a day coming, where every single one of these evils will be made right. There's a day coming. And here's the deal. And here's what's so fascinating. Solomon looking out over Israel, and he's ruling with the Old Testament law, the law of God. And he's noticing that there is These animals are running rampant. There's oppression, there's wickedness, there's injustice. And he's concluding, as we should conclude, that the law is not the problem. That the human heart is the problem. We don't just need justice and righteousness out there. We need it in here first. And here's the gospel, and here's the reality today. You and I can't produce that. We can't do good enough, we can't think well enough, we can't be smart enough, we can't ascend high enough to ever produce justice and righteousness in our own hearts or produce it out there. Israel's longings that all of this oppression would cease and be gone forever and would be led by a righteous leader who would rule justly and fairly and lovingly and mercifully can only be provided by one Person. And here's what's so fascinating. The irony of this passage is Solomon was the one who was literally in charge of the justice of the land. He was responsible for it, he had a hand in it. And Solomon is looking out and saying, There's no one who can fix this. God's appointed me as the leader of Israel. And he says, There's no, there's, there's no fixing this. There is no human under the sun that can fix this problem. Solomon knew there had to be someone else, and Solomon knew that it wasn't him. Solomon was looking for a greater leader in a greater day. And here's what's so fascinating. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to flip it over to Psalm 72. If you look at Psalm 72, Solomon was actually the author of this psalm. Your heading might say a Psalm of Solomon or just of Solomon, if you're in the ESV. And notice what he says. This is Solomon looking at his kingdom, knowing that, hey, I can't fix this. No human system can fix this. We can't fix what's broken inside of us. We can't change the human heart. And listen to Psalm 72. He says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Not talking about himself. in his days, may the righteousness, may, may righteous flourish and the peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Saba bring gifts. May all kings fall before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave. May, be, may its fruits be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be, and here's the name, the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Here's the whole point of today. Solomon looks out and says, hey, there has to be a greater ruler. There has to be a greater righteousness. There has to be a greater savior who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And he says, hey, that day is coming. It's not me. It's the Lord. It's a greater Solomon. Jesus said someone greater than Solomon is here. And here's the good news of the gospel is that because of the finished work of Christ, Jesus didn't come down to earth just to make us act better. He didn't come down to earth just to fix our behavior. What does he say in Jeremiah? That I will write my law in their hearts. That I'm not just gonna fix them on the outside, I'm gonna make them new creations from the inside out. I'm gonna take the heart of stone out and I'm gonna put in a heart of flesh and I'm gonna cause them to know me and love me and enjoy me and obey me. So now, yes, we don't put our hope in earthly systems providing ultimate peace. We know that that day is coming. But now we take the spirit of God and the power of God in us and we live righteous lives. We fight for righteousness. We fight for justice. We fight for peace. We conduct ourselves, men and women in here, with justice and with fairness and with peace and with kindness and mercy that we conduct ourselves this way. Why? Because that's who our Savior is. He's declared me righteous and just and holy and I'm not But he's made me that way because of the finished work of his son. And I'm going to live to know him and to walk with him and to reflect him to the world. So what's the application? We walk and we act justly. Micah 6, 8, he's told us, oh man, what is good to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. And so many other texts where he tells us to live justly. Isaiah 1, learn to do good, to seek justice, to correct oppression, to bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. Isaiah 56, keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness revealed. Proverbs 21, do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Jesus says, hey, I care more about you looking after the widows and the orphans, this is the book of James, than for your religious deeds. Don't come in here and play religion. Follow me, and I'm a God who's just. And if I put my spirit in you and my power in you, fight for what's just. Do what's right. Get involved in public policy, right? You know, call your senators and your governors and and write legislation and propose things and get involved. Fight for those who don't have a voice. Those in human trafficking, those in slavery, there's so much injustice. I could spend 30 more minutes just talking about all the injustices that we just see throughout the course of a week. But he says, get involved. But don't put your hope in the ultimate fixing of things here under the sun. Put your hope in the one who's going to come and make all things new. And every single wrong that's been done under the sun will be revealed and will be punished. And here's where we end today. Here's where we end. Every single sin will be punished. If you're in here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you need to hear this warning. That every single sin that has ever been committed will be justly punished. And here's the good news of the gospel. Our sin will either be punished by the person who committed it, if they're trusting in their own behavior and their own good works, or our sin will be punished by Christ himself who took it on himself as our substitute. But not a single injustice, a single sin will ever slide by. Are just and all-seeing God. He is righteous, and he will judge the living and the dead. And here's the, the, the hope. Praise God that God did not punish injustice 20 years ago. Right? Praise God that he didn't ultimately, swiftly and finally punish injustice 15 years ago. Many of us wouldn't even be believers then. Because here's the deal. We cry out for God to to punish the injustice, but for God to do that, he has to start here. He has to start with me. Because I'm not just. I'm not perfect in my dealings. I'm not fair all the time. I'm selfish. I'm corrupt. I'm wicked at times. In and of my own flesh. And for God to swiftly and finally punish justice, he's got to start with me. He's got to start with us. So praise God. Not that these things are happening in our world, but but what does Peter say? He says, don't count the slowness of God as slowness. Count it as patience. Count it as salvation. As God desiring all to repent. He says, hey, there's a day coming. Fix your eyes on that day. But until that day, seek the salvation of the Lord while he still may be found. Put your hope in Christ. There's a refuge from the just punishment that we justly and rightly deserve. And that refuge is a cross. It is where, the cross of Christ is where we see the justice of God and the mercy of God on full display. Every sin put on his own son. And at the same time, God being just, God being merciful. And now the cross is the invitation for all to come and repent for all to find forgiveness.